Okay, so today we're uh, going to look at the letter to the church at uh, at Pergamum. Uh, by now, you should already know pretty much the basic struggles that all the churches in Asia Minor were going through. Uh, we've seen them already in the churches of Ephesus and in Smyrna, and today we're going to look at uh, today we're going to look at Pergamum. Um, we're going to see the same context here. Uh, in fact, we're going to pretty much see the same context in all the churches to one degree or another. Uh, we're going to see that Christ, in uh, when he addresses the churches, uh, all his condemnations or commendations, all his rebukes or his praises of their good works are going to be based in the response that the church had to these pressures that were coming from outside, these trials that were coming from uh, from outside. Uh, I know I say this every time, but I'm intentionally moving slow through these letters uh, to the seven churches to make sure that you understand the background behind all of the visionary portions of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to see that this book was relevant to uh, the first people who heard it, the first people who received the book in those seven churches, uh, it's relevant for us today. And if the world spins for another thousand years, it'll be relevant to uh, those believers uh, living at that time as as well. So uh, the three basic struggles that we've seen, we've saw in uh, uh, the churches at Ephesus and in Smyrna are the same three that we're going to see in this church and in all the rest of the cities of Asia Minor. Uh, number one was the pagan worship, the the feasts, the festivals, the trade guilds, the the um, the the worship of these gods and goddesses that was part and parcel of uh, life in those cities, uh, public life in those cities. Uh, we we have to remember. It's really hard for me to get this across to the modern mindset, but uh, you know today we're we're kind of like. You know, you do your own thing and nobody bothers me. I'm not going to bother nobody else. But uh, in those days, that mindset was not uh, was not the prevalent worldview. Um, you were expected to uh, participate in these, um, you know, feasts, festivals, ceremonies, uh, parades, these uh, these uh, offerings, honorings to these gods of these different cities. Uh, they were they were offering sacrifice and, and paying honor to these gods for their prosperity, for their for their trade, whatever work that they did for the the peace of the city, for the you know we're going to see here in the church at Pergamum they were praying and sacrificing for the healing of their friends and family, uh, and so for you to say for a Christian to say no I'm not going to participate in those things was hard for people to understand they they would see you as a hater of mankind or antisocial you know they would have seen you as um something of a uh, a weirdo kind of I guess would be a good way to put it so the first first thing you have three pressures one is these trade guild uh, pagan festival worships, you know, these pagan deities that were prevalent in every city. The second thing he had was the Rome, Rome herself, um, the imperial cult, you know, the worship of the Caesars, uh, those kind of things. We, we talked about a little bit about that last time. We're going to talk some more about it this time. You were expected to pay homage to Caesar uh, by, uh, by sacrifice or by worship or by, um, you know, uh, uh, giving homage to him. Uh, whoever he was, and to the Roman state, it was uh, it was part of being subject to the Roman Empire. And then the third the third pressure they had was from the Jewish community that was in each of these cities. Uh, and so uh, there they were they were pressuring. Actually, they were they were more along the lines of they believed that Christians were blaspheming. They were blaspheming the, their religion by saying that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God in in flesh. And uh, the Jews were making it known to the Romans that they were these people aren't Jewish and they're not part of our uh, religion. And so they were accusing them and and turning them over to the uh, the authorities of uh, uh, of the of the city of each city that he was in so the persecution that we see in the cities was it wasn't emperor em, empire wide it was more more along the lines of local persecution 
you know, the magistrates, the pro councils, the 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 procurators of each of each city of each province would uh, take matters into their own hands when somebody was. Uh, was accused of something or, or the, they thought that there were their religion was going to lead to an insurrection or something like that. They would take, they would take matters into their own hands. Uh, this letter, Pergamum, <clears throat> the letter to the church at Pergamum, um, it's in chapter two. Um, Pergamum was about 40 miles, uh, from Smyrna. Uh, and if you get a map, I would encourage you to get a map and look at these seven churches. You'll see that the the order that they're in the, in the the order that they're listed in the book of Revelation, uh, Ephesus first, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, and so on. You can follow it. It's almost like a little mail route. Like each of these churches, it would go to Ephesus first, and then it would go. If you follow follow it up and around Asia Minor, you can see that um, there was a it, there was intention in the fact that they are listed in the order that they're in. Uh, but we're going to see that uh, Pergamum was uh, was uh, filled with all of these. Uh, remember, remember, before we start, uh, remember the structure of the letters. The structure of the letters tells us a lot about what's being said. Uh, you're going to have the same structure in every letter. You're going to have uh, the audience is going to be addressed to the angel of the church of whatever. You're going to have an introduction by Jesus who will use one of the uh, the the word pictures uh, to introduce himself that we saw in chapter one. Uh, and each one of those introductions for each letter is going to be directly relevant to the city to whom he's writing. He's going to give after that a, uh, a series of either co- commendations or rebukes, uh, sometimes both. He's going to give both here. Uh, and uh, then he'll have uh, the 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 phrase the one who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches that's going to be in every letter and then finally he's going to give um, a, a promise of everlasting life to those who conquer to those who overcome to the overcomer I will give uh, and he will describe that everlasting life in different uh, uh, pictures from the Old Testament and we'll see that uh, again today in Pergamum so. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is the, the audience and the introduction of Christ. It's the angel of the church at Pergamum. Uh, and he introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, he introduces himself this way. Uh, because uh, really, if you're a student of the New Testament, it doesn't take much brain power uh, for you to recognize what's being said here. You know, the Bible tells us uh, in in a number of places that the word of God is the two-edged sword. The word of God is the sword, sword of the spirit, which uh, is the word of God. The the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the marrow of the bone, piercing the dividing of soul and spirit. Um, it, we also see the same thing in Revelation nineteen fifteen, where Christ comes riding a white horse and it says a sword comes from his mouth. And at the very end of this letter, Christ himself is going to say, uh, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to make war with you with the sword that comes from my mouth. And so uh, he's talking about the word of God. But uh, what's interesting here, he he uh, he. Uh, he introduces himself as the one with the sword. Basically, I have the sword. I have the two-edged sword, and we know that it's his word. But but what he's what he's showing here is that he is the one that has authority. You see, uh, the Roman government, the Roman government in Pergamum wielded what's called uh, the eus gladii, and that that means the right of the sword. Uh, Pergamum was the provincial capital. Uh, of the uh, well, it was the capital of the province of of Asia. It's where the proconsul uh, made his judgments, made his policies. It was where the, if you want to call him the governor of the province, uh, governor of the province lived. Uh, this is this is would be it would be Pergamum. This is what. Uh, this city was uh, was known for in the province was it was the uh, the sort of the capital city. That's probably a okay way to put it. Um, but this procurator, this uh, proconsul, uh, in in all the Roman provinces all over the the Roman world, the the proconsul, the governor, the the procurator, whatever you want to call him, he. He wielded what was called the Eus Gladii. Sometimes it's called high justice. If you want to look it up, uh, you can talk about Roman high justice or the the Eus Gladii. 
the Eus Gladii literally means the right of the sword. Uh, Pergamum was under Rome's justice, and it was Rome's sword that was wielded, and it was Rome's authority that dictated events that that went on in 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 Pergamum. And so, when when Jesus comes to the city uh, announcing himself, uh, when he writes to the city, I should say, announcing himself, he says, "I'm the one with the sword. I'm the one with the two edged sword." And that we know that that's the word that comes from his mouth uh, he introduces himself as the one who has the sword uh, rome may possess the power of the sword to execute and persecute uh, whoever it wishes we're going to see that that there's a, a man killed here uh, for his witness in just a minute um, but there exists another authority one who is far greater far more powerful than even the civil government of uh, of the city of pergamum the the believers in pergamum they're going to face persecution uh, for their stance uh, they're going to uh, they're going to be called upon to die as we saw in the letter of smyrna last week about be faithful unto death but they should not be in fear of the Roman sword. They shouldn't be in fear of the authority of this uh, this government that was seated in this city, Pergamum. They shouldn't be in fear of that sword. They should be obedient to the true power of all creation. Uh, Jesus is going to give them some instruction here. He's going to give them a rebuke here. And he expects them to obey his word because he's the one with the two-edged sword. Uh, it doesn't matter whatever whatever earthly power they face, whatever the Roman magistrates decide to do, uh, whatever they can bring down on their head. Jesus is the one who is sovereign. He is the one that is in control. They may be faced with the power of Rome's sword right now, but that will be far and away better than facing the sword of Christ's uh, rebuke at the judgment of the Lord. So, uh, you know, this this is a basic teaching of the Bible for all believers everywhere. Uh, God's word is sovereign. It's the standard of all things. When those in power tell us to break it or, or, or try to force us to deny God's word uh, by the way that we live or the, by the way that we uh, by the way that we act or the things that we do in society, it's our duty to stand firm and be faithful to God. Christians throughout the centuries have given their lives just as a testimony to the power of Christ. Uh, but, you know, you know as well as I do that today many modern believers refuse to give anything. They refuse to give their free time or, or finances or whatever for Christ's witness. You know, even when the sword of men is not at our throat, we, we refuse to give uh, whatever for the witness of Christ. So if Christ calls Pergamum to fear the sword, rather to fear his sword, rather than the sword of the rulers of the world, uh, you know, what would his command be for modern believers who, for the most part, enjoy the freedom to worship? Uh, you know, Jesus is the true judge. He has the right. He has the Eus Gladii, not the Romans, to judge all of creation. You know, he has the right to judge those uh, who are living in Pergamum. Now, next comes uh, the commendation to the church. Uh, he's going to commend them for withstanding the persecution of the world and holding fast to to his name. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, uh, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells so let's take this uh, let's take this verse apart uh one phrase at a time if you have your bible you should have your bible you should have a notebook open uh we're going to take it one phrase at a time I, I encourage you to take notes i forgot to remind you of that at the very beginning uh, i'm going to try to go fast so we can get this all in you can re-listen to it or stop and start as you write whatever you want to do um but first he says i know where you live uh you live where where satan's throne is now, it seems that that's kind of important here because in most of the other churches, um, the churches that he's writing to, uh, his first words to them is, I know your works. But here he says, I know where you live. I know that you are 
dwelling where Satan's throne is at. Uh, Jesus is not oblivious to the to the hotbed of religious diversity and persecution and pressures and intimidation and all these demonic expressions of worship that have uh, are multiplied exponentially in the city of Pergamum. He's not oblivious to that. He's going to give them some commands and they don't have the right to say, well, you just don't understand. You just don't understand what all we're going through. Jesus says, yeah, I know where you live. I see right where you're at. I know what you're surrounded by. So it was it was uh, the city was so fundamentally pagan and wicked that that Jesus says that they're living right where Satan's throne is. So what is what is Satan's throne Um, in the city of Pergamum? There's going to be three or four good possibilities here. So what I want to do is I just want to present some of these to you. And um, you can you can go and, and look them up. You know, these things are historical, historical facts. So you can go and read up on them and see which one you think. Um, he, he talks about Satan's throne being in Pergamum. So there, there's a few good possibilities. Let me just give them to you um, based on. Let me say this, though, before we start, based on what we know about John and his propensity to layer his images. Uh, we've seen that in the symbolism of John. Remember in chapter one where John kind of uh, actually it was Jesus speaking. But what what we see there is that we have uh, uh, an Old Testament symbol from here and one from over there and one from over here. And he just kind of puts them all together and he makes one picture of fulfillment in that, you know, he's kind of layering his images and symbols. Um, the way that he does that and the way that we're going to see that he does that throughout the book um, I can see uh, there's going to be some elements of truth in all of these things that we're going to talk about, about Satan's throne being in Pergamum. So it's not just an either or. It's either number one or it's either number two. I think that I think that we can make room for the realization that all of these things together constitute the fact that uh, you could say that Pergamum was the place where Satan's throne dwelled. Um in Pergamum, the first thing that you would see if you walked into, uh, if you were walking into the city, like if you saw the city from a distance and you were, you know, traveling to it, the first thing you would see was would be a big, huge edifice, a big, huge building right in the center uh, on a on a big on a big Acropolis, a big hill. Uh, it's about eight hundred feet above the city, and this big building looked just like it was built to resemble an altar. And that altar, that big, huge, gigantic altar in the midst of the city, it was called the Altar of Zeus or the Altar of Pergamum. And you can look that up and you can still see uh, facsimiles of it and you can see the ruins of it. They've, I think they've carted it off to a museum somewhere or something like that, but you can still see online images of it. And on this altar, this huge altar in the middle of the city, there were um, uh, sculptures. They called them friezes. There were, there were sculptures all around it and it was dedicated to Zeus and it was dedicated to Athena. Athena was the patron goddess of Pergamum, and of course, you know, Zeus in Greek mythology was the head, the head honcho, the head god. And so, if you were looking at this, if you were looking at this uh, structure that uh, sat in the middle of the city, this was this was a big deal. It was a big, huge altar dedicated to this false god, to this false uh, whatever. And there were there were feasts and festivals and ceremonies and all kind of things that happened all the time uh, here at this altar. And 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 it has even been called by 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 some people call it the the throne of Zeus. It looked it looked resembled such as a throne, and it was just this big huge thing. And so uh, when you thought about Pergamum, that's the first thing that comes to your mind. That first thing that comes to your mind is this big huge thing that looks like an altar right in the middle of the city, dedicated to Zeus, dedicated to Athena, the patron goddess of Pergamum. It was like you know when I say Paris, you know you ever been to Paris? What's the first thing you think of? Is Eiffel Tower, you know, it's the that that you, you throw an Eiffel Tower up on a screen or, or show you a picture of an Eiffel Tower, and the first thing you think of that's France, that's Paris. Uh, it was the same way with Pergamum. This building uh, was uh, definitional of the of the city. The architecture of it uh, showed that uh, it, it was a, a very important. Uh, some people have called it the the grandest building in the city of Pergamum. So there was this huge, huge 
altar throne looking thing right in the middle of the city. And so this could be one of the things that he's pointing to when he says you you, you dwell where Satan's throne is at. Um, another possibility is that uh, there was uh, the other the other big god. You know, there are a lot of little gods that people worshipped in, in, in Pergamum. We have we have uh, uh, historical documents uh, documenting the fact that uh, Hera was worshipped there. Uh, uh, Dionysus was worshipped there, Demeter was worshipped there, uh, Heracles was worshipped there, over and over again, all these different little gods. But there were there were the altar to Zeus and Athena was the big one. And there was another big one there. It was the god Asclepius. Now you probably have you probably have never heard of the god Asclepius, uh, but you have definitely seen his insignia. Asclepius was get this now he was a snake god. I mean he, he he was a snake. It was a huge snake that these folks worshipped, and so Asclepius was the god of healing. And so people would worship him. There was a big, huge cult following right there in Pergamum. There was temples, priests, priestess, all those kind of things. And people would offer sacrifices, and they would go and celebrate and all, all those kind of things. But the the Asclepius's temple there was the, the temple dedicated to healing. Later, it became a medical uh, medical school, a medical. I don't mean I don't know how you can uh, I don't know how you could classify how much you could classify at a medical school. Back, you know, way back then, but it was it was seen as a medical facility, a medical school where the healing arts were taught and that kind of stuff. Um, the god Asclepius, uh, the insignia of the god Asclepius was a rod. It's called the rod of Asclepius. It's a rod with a snake wrapped around it. And that today, in I mean, even in modern day, that's still the symbol for healing. A lot of medical organizations still use that s- symbol. Uh, the American Medical uh, Association uses the rod of Asclepius in their logo. Uh, the United States Air Force Medical Corps uses the rod of Asclepius in their logo. Uh, World Health Organization. I mean, lots of you go online and you look it up in different medical organizations, hospitals, all kind of things. And you'll see that rod of Asclepius and it's the symbol. It became the symbol of healing. But you see the Christians in the city of Pergamum, uh, they would every Lord's Day, they're going and listening, uh, hearing the preaching of the Greek Old Testament. And, you know, they would have known that the very first picture of Satan in the scripture is what? It's a serpent. You know, it's a serpent in the garden. So imagine being a Christian living in this city and you got these insignias all over the city of this snake, you know, and people are going to worship this snake God. And, <laughs> And so it, it was. It's easy to see where you could say, "Hey, I, I mean, that you're living right where Satan's at. You're living right where Satan is. Uh, is a uh, is dwelling. Uh, we've got evidence that the insignia of Asclepius, the rod of Asclepius, was posted around around the city. So you can imagine what that was like. Um, but because Asclepius was the god of healing. See, for the Christians to forsake his worship or or reject invitations to uh, attend uh, his festivals and feasts that were in his honor, uh, it would have been offensive. I mean, it would have been offensive to reject those uh, to the people in the city. I mean, uh, many people were probably sacrificing, giving honor to Asclepius, this god, so that you know, people that they loved would be healed. You know, people that were sick would be healed and the Christians refused. They refused. wouldn't, you know, they, they, their refusal to go, their refusal to participate would have sent the message that they just didn't care about people's infirmities. They didn't care about society. They didn't care about your loved ones or whatever. That's the message it would have sent. So you can see where all this pressure, all this pressure would have come from. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was pretty out there. I mean, it was easy. To, it's easy to see. Uh, you would be seen as a, a misanthrope or anti, you know, whatever. Uh, the whole society, the whole socioeconomic way of life was built around the worship of these gods, uh, not just Zeus and Asclepius and Athena, but all of these, all of these different deities and and what they represented. Uh, that was part and parcel of living in the first century in these cities. It wasn't it wasn't like you could just say no, no, thank you and everything be OK. Uh, you were basically telling all of civilized society to go take a flying leap, and you better believe there was going to be there was going to be consequences, social consequences, economic consequences, and so 
you can see where this mindset would be um it would be not conducive for the for the christians to uh, to refuse to worship these these fake gods and so that could be a possibility so you have zeus's uh quote unquote throne or is really an altar big huge altar building made to look like an altar in the middle of the city towering over the city you had asclepius who was one of the major gods in pergamum who was worshiped the god of healing that was a big snake you know so he was a snake god that people worship um, and there's also this one is a real possibility. Uh, I kind of lean in this direction. Uh, another possibility of Satan's throne being in Pergamum was that Pergamum was the seat of uh, of Roman authority. It was the seat of uh, Roman authority and imperial worship in the province of, of Asia. Um, this is where I, I told you before when we talked about the right of the sword. I told you that this is where the 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 proconsul and all that did his thing. This is kind of the capital of the province of Asia. It's where he he he, he you know he rendered judgments. Um, but Pergamum was also deeply ingrained with the imperial cult. That's the worship of the Caesars, the paying homage to them, sacrificing to them. Uh, the worship uh, the worship of the Caesars was widespread in Pergamum. I mean, even even more than some of the other cities. Uh, Pergamum was the first city in the province of Asia con- to uh, construct a shrine to a living emperor. You know, it was dedicated. This shrine was dedicated to Augustus Caesar in 29 A.D. Um, and you can read about that in, in a book by Tacitus called The Annals of Imperial Rome. Uh, he talks about how this this uh, shrine to this living Caesar was was built. Normally, the Caesars uh, were just worshipped after they were dead. But when Augustus permitted this shrine to uh, to be built, uh, which later became a temple, um, it, when he permitted it to be built in his honor, you know, a pattern started emerging. Increasingly, the emperors decided that hey, you know, it's, it'd be a good idea for people to honor me as a god and and worship me and and pay homage to me. And it happened more and more. Claudius and Caligula and and all those guys until until finally in the 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 sixties. Uh, Nero, I mean, Nero just went absolutely nuts, you know, and decided that he was a god, you know, and demanded people to worship him. Um, so Pergamum was not just uh, the seat of power for uh, the political state of Rome. It was also the official seat of the worship of the empire, the worship of the Caesars, worship of, uh, of Roma, the god of Rome. Uh, it, it was um, it was the provincial capital. It was the capital of the province, uh, and it was also the 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 head place where the imperial cult was. The priests and the priestesses of the imperial cult that worship Caesar. So those things the the, uh, the altar to Zeus, the the god Asclepius, and the the insignias of the snake all around the city uh and the fact that this is where the seat of power was in both for rome and uh the imperial cult you know you take all those things together man that is uh you living in dangerous ground if you're a christian and you living in this city so he says jesus says i know where you live look i i understand what you're going through you're living right where satan's throne's at buddy I mean, you're living, you're living right up under his throne, thro- uh, right up under his throne. You're living right up under his nose. Uh, but look what Jesus says in 13. I said, I know where you live. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. They were holding fast to his name. They were, they did not deny his face. It says faith, his face, his faith, even in the days when Antipas, and he calls Antipas here his faithful witness, was killed, was killed among you where where Satan dwells. Um, so he says that they were, even though they were dwelling where Satan's throne is, they held fast to his name. Uh, remember, remember that Christians weren't necessarily called upon to deny Jesus as God. You know, the Romans didn't care. They didn't care how many gods you had. They didn't care how many gods you worshipped. As long as you were a good citizen and you worship the gods of the city to make the city prosperous and you worship the gods of the the Roman state 
you know, you can worship whatever God you want to as long as you add our gods in there with it. Uh, and that's something that the Christians weren't ref- – they refused to do. Uh, they wouldn't add other deities because there are no other deities. There's only one God. Uh, and so they worshiped Christ. So when Jesus says, you've not denied my name and held fast to the faith, he's saying that they've refused to worship anything or anyone else other than Christ. They have made the conscious decision to reject the other gods in the city, uh, choosing to remove themselves from the participation in the feasts and the festivals. They basically chose to ostracize themselves from their friends and relatives who took part in these ceremonies and uh, and sacrifice to the god of healing and, and you know and other things like that. They refused to sacrifice to any Caesar, to worship any Caesar, to pay homage to any Caesar, and they... You know, that by itself would bring far worse consequences than just social and economic consequences um, to, to, to refuse to worship the Caesar, to pay homage to the Caesar. That would bring charges of treason. You know, in some cases, it would bring, you know, charges of sedition, rebellion that would lead to a trial, lead to execution, lead to banishment. It would lead to all kinds of things. So we need to make sure that we remember what these Christians were doing when they were holding fast to Jesus's name, refusing to deny his faith. They were standing on Jesus alone, refusing to split their allegiance with the culture, refusing to split their allegiance with uh, the political power or the state, refusing to split their allegiance uh, between Christ and anything else. Modern readers, man, we can take a huge lesson from this. Our allegiance is split between Jesus and worldly things, even when our lives and social circumstances are not on the line. Uh, This is what the Pergamon church refused to do. Even when one of their own was executed for doing so, Antipas was killed. Jesus calls him my faithful witness. He was killed. And so you can only assume he was killed. He was executed by uh, the Roman authorities for either not participating in the homage to Caesar or uh, not participating in the in the uh, uh, the city's uh, ceremonies, feasts and festivals, uh, causing dissension, leading others to accuse him of this or that. Uh, even when one of their own was killed, Jesus says that they refused to deny his name, even when Antipas uh, was killed for it. Now, we don't know who this Antipas was, or we don't know exactly the circumstances of his martyrdom, but um, his mention would have been well known to the residents of Pergamum, I can only assume, because John doesn't really take time to explain it. So, you know, with all the idolatrous, governmental, religious activity, it's really not hard to imagine why he was martyred. Uh, but it is interesting to see that his name, Antipas, means, in Greek, it means against everything. <laughs> So anti means against and pas, uh, pas, pasa or pan means, uh, means all or everything in Greek. So his name anti pas means against everything. So he stood against everything that was coming. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just neat to me that his name means, uh, probably what he died for. He stood against everything except for Christ, all the things that were coming at him, pagan worship on one side, Roman worship on the other side. Uh, allegiance to the state on one side, Jewish community on one side. He he stood against everything and he died for it. But it's really interesting to me. I mean, imagine this. The church who is already pressured from every side to include other things in their worship, they refused to deny Jesus by allowing uh, these things to take hold. And they held fast to his name even when one of their own was executed. Now, that would make you stop and think about the courage of your convictions. Uh, it's one thing to get threatened with death. It's another ball game when your buddy next to you actually dies and somebody looks at you and says, now, if you don't stop it, you're next. I mean, that will make you question the courage of your convictions. But uh, this church is said is commended by Christ for holding fast to his name in the face of persecution, holding fast to not letting go, to not compromising with the culture, not compromising with the state, not compromising with the imperial worship, all those kind of things. But Jesus does have something against this church, and it's very interesting. It's something that we really should take a take a close look at. Verse 14 and 15, I'll read them both together. Um, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there... Who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols 
and practice sexual immorality. Uh, the word there is pornaya, sexual immorality. So also, verse 15 says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the church at Pergamum had stood fast against outside pressures of the pagan cults, imperial political machine. Uh, but Christ says that he does hold something against them. They have allowed a group of compromisers to come into the church. And they're trying to corrupt the truth from the inside. Um, it's strange, but look at what the text actually says. It says Jesus said that they were faithful. They were faithful even when Antipas was murdered. They didn't deny his name. They held fast. But Jesus holds against them the fact that there are some among them that are teaching compromise with the pagan cultures. He calls them uh, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I'm going to come back to that uh, about what exactly he's talking about there in a minute. But let me explain to you this uh, Balaam, what the teaching of Balaam is. It's a it's a little it's a little complex and it's going to it's going to require that you uh, get a pen and write these verse verses down uh, and uh, maybe go back and read a chapter or, or two or three in numbers uh, you want to pause this and do that uh, but John's reference to the teaching of Balaam uh, he says he taught Balak to corrupt the Israelites uh, what what he's talking about there is going to be found in numbers chapter 20 22 um, pretty much all the way down through 30. Uh, it's going to be it's not just one big long story, but it starts in 22 and then you can see the ramifications of it um, over in uh, in 3031. So it's this big, huge chunk of text. So let me just try to summarize it for you as best I can. And then later at some time you can go and read numbers uh, 22 through, I don't know, 31, 32 right in there somewhere. Um, Balaam, <clears throat> Balaam. What he did was he he taught this king Balak to corrupt Israel from the inside rather than attack them from the outside. Uh, this accounts given, like I told you, in Numbers twenty-two uh, and twenty-three. Um, that's the actual that's the actual story of Balaam and Balak. Um, Balaam was a prophet. He was a seer, you know, one who could tell things, speak to God and get messages from God. And after Israel was freed from Egypt, they were marching through this King Balak's territory. He was king of the Midianites. Uh, so they were marching through Balak and get the names straight because there was Balak was the king. Balaam was the seer. OK, so Balak, um, he tried to hire the, the seer, the prophet Balaam, to curse the people of Israel so that God would destroy them. Evidently, Balaam had a you know, he had a um, a history of being able to curse stuff and, and bless stuff and whatever. And so. He he said, I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you all this money, give you all these riches if you'll just curse these people so they'll be destroyed. Um, and Balak was Balak was going to do it, but uh, God would not let him curse the people. Three times God refused to allow Balaam to curse the people, but instead God commanded him to bless them. And, of course, Balaam obeyed and did so. Um, on his way to meet Balak, that's the story where we have Balaam's donkey, where Balaam uh, is riding a donkey and the, the angel of the Lord appeared with a sword in his way and Balaam didn't see him, but the donkey saw him. And three times Balaam tried to go forward. The donkey went off to the side and he beat the donkey and then the donkey talked, you know, and so then Balaam saw the angel of the Lord and was was warned. You know, don't you don't you say something that God didn't tell you to say. You're going to say what God tells you to say. And so Balaam was warned about not cursing the people of Israel. So Balaam did what he was told, and he blessed the people of Israel three times instead of cursing the people. Well, this made Balak, the king, very angry. And so uh, later in the text, we're told that Balaam uh, came up with a plan to get Balak's money and help destroy Israel without actually cursing Israel. Uh, he suggests to, to Balak that the way to deal with Israel is to corrupt them from the inside by sending foreign women into the camp, 
to intermarry with the Israelites. And when these women came into the camp and mixed with the Israelites, um, God's wrath came upon them and a plague started running rampant through the people. And after the plague was stopped by some some quick action of a few Israelites, uh, uh, the guy grabbed a spear and went and killed, you know, they were commanded to kill all these women and uh, all these people. And uh, somebody didn't do it. And a guy grabbed a spear and went and killed him. And and because of that quick action, they, they the plague was stopped. And God uh, God commands after this plague is stopped. God commands that Balak's people, the Midianites, be destroyed. Well, the people went to war and they won, but they didn't kill all the women. They didn't kill all the people that God told them to kill. And in Numbers chapter thirty one, verses fifteen through sixteen, I'm going to read those to you. This is Moses speaking to them about why they didn't kill the women. And this is where we we, we reference uh, the fact that Balaam advised Balak to send these women into the camp. It's never told to us in the actual story. If you read Numbers uh, 22 down through you know, 23, 24, 25, you, you won't hear the fact that uh, nowhere in the narrative does it say Balaam. And Balaam said, you know, let's send a bunch of women in there and kind of corrupt them from the inside. We're not told that. When, when the story of Balaam and Balak uh, ends, the very next section talks about, and then the Israelites, took women from the Midianites and and, and, and it's kind of left out of there. But in Numbers chapter 31, verses 15 and 16, when the Israelites spared all the people that they were supposed to kill, uh, Moses said this, verse 15, Numbers 31, 15 says, Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? He said, behold, these, these women on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So in Numbers 31, Moses is telling us there, Moses is reminding them, he says, you didn't kill them? He said, don't you know that it's because of them on Balaam's advice that they came into the camp in the first place and caused all this plague and all this problem? So the teaching of Balaam here referenced in Revelation is that there were there were some that were inside the church community that were teaching uh, that it's okay to compromise with the culture. It's okay to compromise with the religious atmosphere of the city of Pergamum. It's not such a bad thing. Uh, they were teaching that there needed to be some compromise, you know, and a middle ground. We, we, uh, you know, we, Jesus commands that we're not to conform in any way, but, you know, it's not really necessary for us to be so exclusive with our practices. I mean, we live in the city and we, we should really be good citizens of the city. You know, we should be good subjects of the empire. We, you know, aren't we supposed to obey our rulers, the church? The church itself here in this letter is commended for holding fast to Christ's names, Christ's name, but they are also rebuked for allowing these people to remain in their fellowship undisciplined. Jesus is holding against them the fact that these people were dwelling in their midst. Uh, they were allowed to continue. If you... Um, Follow the pronouns for a minute. Um, well, let me let me come back to that. I'll come back to that in a minute. These people were in the church. They were confessing believers. They were professing believers, but they were ready to compromise. Now, remember now, the church itself, he said, you held fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith even when Antipas was killed. He said, but I'm holding this against you, church. That there's some among you, there's some in you that are compromisers. They're holding to the teaching of Balaam. They're holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was the same teaching. Um, the compromisers were attempting to get the people of the church of Pergamum to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality, pornaya. Uh, these things, uh, the things sacrificed to idols would include Christians. Well, what that meant was Christians taking part in the feasts. And the worship ceremonies, the the false gods surrounding the culture at, at these ceremonies, which were part and parcel of community life in the city, uh, some a bunch of animals, usually sheep, oxen, goats, something like that, uh, were killed. Uh, and, and part of it was uh, first they were paraded through the city and a big celebration and all that would go on and it would be fanfare. And, uh, you know, the the whole city would come out and see all this going on and, and uh, then they would be killed. Uh, part of the their... Uh, 
their carcasses would be burnt on the altar for you know whatever god there was being honored zeus or athena or whoever uh and uh the the other part of the the bodies of the animals would be eaten at a feast there at a temple or at uh some grounds where uh the public would come and they would enjoy this uh a feast uh in in the honor of this god whoever he was and then after the feast if there was any leftover portions were sold in the marketplace for food uh portions were given to the public whatever so here what we see when he says that they're holding to the teaching of balaam that taught them to uh uh, eat food, uh, sacrifice to idols, and to uh, uh, commit sexual immorality, which is pornia. Um, they are basically, it's basically the same thing that we see in the other churches. The temptation was to conform to the culture. Just go ahead and take part in the festival. Go ahead and take part in the, the f- temple feast to whatever God. You know, it's just being a citizen. It's just being part of the city. Now, let me distinguish one thing here before we move on. Uh, we probably ought to distinguish between actually taking part in the feast dedicated to whatever false God and just going to the market and buying some meat. In First Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells the believers, uh, you know, we know that idols aren't real gods. And so it's just a matter of your own conscience. If you go to the marketplace and you just go buy some meat and go home and eat it, you know, you don't really have to find out if it's been sacrificed to idols. Or it's, just, it's just meat. Go buy it. Go eat it. It's just a matter of conscience. If it bothers your conscience, then, hey, don't eat it. It's all good. Don't worry about it. But it, we know that idols aren't real. So it, it's really just meat. That's not what's being taught talked about here it's not talking about uh the teaching of balaam here is not talking about just going to the marketplace and buying some meat uh what he is what he's talking about here what the false teachers were in were putting into the minds of these uh church members was telling them it was okay to eat the things sacrificed to idols he's telling them that it's okay to take part in the temple feasts it's okay to uh take part in the the sacrifices and the worship practices to these pagan gods. Hey, you know what? We don't really believe that anyway, but it's okay just to go ahead and take part in those things. He's talking about joining in with the surrounding culture in their ceremonies, in their worship practices, uh, to some other God. Uh, he's talking about just going through the motions of being uh, in these practices, even though you may not really believe that it's a true God or whatever. Uh, this is the same thing that we see in Acts chapter 15. When the Jerusalem Council met to decide whether um, Gentiles needed to be circumcised, uh, they decided that the Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. They didn't need to be circumcised. They didn't need to keep the law of Moses. Uh, but they also decided that the Gentiles couldn't just remain pagans either. So the apostles sent a letter. If you read Acts chapter 15, you'll see this. The apostles sent a letter with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, back to the Gentile church, telling them that, you know, hey, you don't need to be circumcised. We're not going to lay any burden upon you. And he says, but you need to you need to refrain from eating things sacrificed to idols and you need to refrain from sexual immorality and you need to refrain from things that still have the blood in it and what they were telling them was you cannot take part in these pagan rituals anymore you can you don't have to become a jew in order to become a christian but you can't stay a pagan and become a christian either you can't be taking part in all these uh all these uh, love feasts and these temple idolatrous ceremonies you, you can't do that and be a christian and so they were saying uh, they were saying uh, the, those that hold the teaching of Balaam in this church, uh, they would have been calling for compromise, calling for compromise with the world. They would say, you know, we live here. We need to be good citizens. We should open the doors and go out to these social feasts and festivals. Uh, this is what we this is what we are. We're supposed to do. And you know what? People would see us better. If we would just bend a little. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you or not. Um, the The sexual immorality part. Uh, was also part of those practices, part of those worship practices. The word's pornaya, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean, it could mean all forms of, of sexual deviancy. Um, so it uh, it was common practice to come into the temple of these Greek gods and to have, have sex with the priest or the priestess in order to, um, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, in order to satiate these gods, you know, that these things, these things were done regularly and openly. They were not taboo at the time. 
So this is not something that they were sneaking off doing. This was uh, part and parcel of the practices of the city. Uh, they were done openly, and people openly understood that this was in order to satisfy or appease the God that they were doing it to in some way, whatever. You can you can let your imagination run with that one. But uh, the immorality was part and parcel of the worship. So uh, to eat things sacrificed to idols, commit pornaya, uh, it's associated here with Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, but the same exact phrase to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit pornaya, sexual immorality, is used in the next letter to Thyatira uh, with uh, associated with a, a woman called Jezebel. So I think that we are justified in seeing uh, internal corruption of the church here as the focus of all three of these heresies, the Nicolaitans, the teaching of Balaam, and later when we look at the, the teaching of this, this woman called Jezebel. But remember, let's, just, let's get back to uh, what we were saying earlier. Remember that this church held fast to Christ's name, even in the face of persecution, even seeing one of their own killed, Antipas was killed, they held fast to his name. What Jesus is holding against them here is not that they are compromising with the world, but that they are compromising internally by allowing those who would dilute the faith uh, to remain in their ranks. Uh, look at the pronouns. I want to look at these pronouns. It says, the verse says, but I have a few things against you. He says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. He says, notice what he's saying. He says, what I have against you is that you have some other folks there with you that are holding to the teaching of Balaam. See, he's not saying I have, I'm holding this against you that you hold to the teaching of Balaam. He's saying, I have this against you that there are some among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then in verse 16, look, he says, therefore repent. He's telling you, the church, you need to repent. And he says, if not, I will come to you soon. And he says, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see what he's saying? See what he's saying? He's saying the church is called to repent, but I mean, what's he telling them exactly to repent of? Jesus is not simply telling the idolatrous corruptors of the faith to repent. I mean, that that's a biblical teaching, it's clear command all the way through the Bible. So, yes, he, he it is a command for those idolaters to repent. But here, Jesus is telling the church to repent from allowing these people to go undisciplined in their church. Notice, notice the statements. Let me read them again to you just, so you, just so you get a grasp of what I'm saying. Jesus says, I have something against you. He says, you have some of them who, are, who hold the teaching of Balaam. And he says, and you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then he says, I'm telling you to repent or else I'm coming to you with the sword of my mouth. And I am going to make war with them with the sword of my mouth. The command to repent is for the church to repent of allowing these compromisers to remain in the ranks. Uh, they have the church has said, hey, look, you have stood fast against persecution from the outside. Uh, you've refused to deny my name when persecution came, when the Romans killed Antipas. You refuse to deny my name, but you are compromising internally by letting these people who say they're Christians but teach heresy into your church. Uh, they need to either be disciplined and taught, rebuked, discipled, or they need to be cast out. Uh, they, they must repent. The church needs to repent and remove the leaven. That's within them before the whole church is infected with it. This is a call for churches and church leaders to take responsibility for the flock and hold fast to the truth, both inside and outside the walls of the assembly. Having Jesus say that he's coming against them with the sword of his mouth would have been 
Man, it'd be utter, utterly terrifying to me. Remember, he already said that he's the one with the power of the sword. He's the one with the eus gladii. He, he threatens here to use that judgment upon those within the church holding to the teach of Balaam if the church as a whole does not repent and, and handle the, the uh, compromise that's going on inside the walls of the church. It's interesting, uh, Balaam, he's threatening, them, he's threatening them here with the sword, and Balaam was also threatened with the sword, Numbers 22-23, uh, that's the sword of the angel of the Lord, you know, when he stood in the path, and in fact, Balaam was actually killed with the sword in, in thirty one Numbers 31, verse 8, so Jesus says that if you don't repent, remove the wickedness from among you, he says, I'm going to come and war against them with the sword, and, and I'm going to judge them just like Balaam was judged in the days of old. I'm going to judge him with the sword. And then finally, we come to the last verse of this section. And uh, I got to tell you that there are a lot of questions that need answering about this verse. So I'm going to cover some of the proposals. I'm going to give you some suggestions. Um, many have brought forth. Uh, we'll look at some of the historical context that may or may not support it. But remember, I told you before, and you need to understand this, the structure of the letter uh, is going to solve the dilemma. Uh, it's going to, no matter what, uh, he's going to tell them here, you know, that uh, the one who conquers, I'm going to give him some hidden manna and a white stone and all these things. And we're going to talk about what that kind of stuff means, uh, may or may not mean. But you have to understand that all of these letters are structured the same. And we've seen this before. What's happening right here at the end? He is telling them. The one who overcomes, I'm going to give him eternal life. And he's using pictures from the Old Testament, a different picture for each city. He's going to use a different picture of uh, Old Testament uh, to show them the picture of eternal life. So no matter what all these things mean, uh, or may or may not mean as we talk about them, we know based on the structure of each letter, which is exactly the same, that he's saying those who conquer, I'm giving them eternal life. So really the debate is solved before we even look into Look into what's actually said here, because we know that each of these letters is uh, is structured the same way. Verse 17 says, last verse in this section, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Seen that over and over again to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to pull, he's pulling all these things together. He's pulling manna. He's pulling the white stone. He's pulling the name written on the stone. He's pulling all these things together from, from different avenues, and he's putting them all together to represent eternal life. He's There's representing being right with the Father. It's representing being forever in the presence of God. Um, we... Uh, we saw the common phrase, you know, the one who has ears, let him hear. He said, I'm going to give him manna and a white stone with a new name on it. So let's let's talk about these for just a minute. But we already know that they're, they're just speaking of eternal life uh, throughout the letter. We've been talking about Balaam and the wandering of, of Israel in, in numbers. We saw that in, from numbers a, a few times. Uh, it was during the wilderness journey where, that the people were corrupted by Balaam's teaching. Uh, to Balak. He, he taught Balak to uh, send in uh, corruptors to the camp of Israel. Uh, it was in the wilderness where God provided manna from heaven. So the idea, here, the idea here is that it could be that the church need not fear destruction or starvation from the consequences of refusing idolatrous food. Remember, they said, uh, the, said that uh, Balaam, the teaching of Balaam was teaching them to eat food sacrificed to idols. Well, here God says, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. God himself is going to provide. He's worthy to be trusted to do just that. Uh, the people at Pergamum may have feared, you know, what would become of their livelihood if they refused to take part of the in these uh, social, cultural, idolatrous festivals and things, uh, trade guilds and all those things. Uh, these things define public life. So it would have been some enormous pressure to do that. But here God provides, he promises provision and, and, and sustenance. Uh, they'll be given life with Christ. The The hidden manna will be revealed as they need it. You know, just like in the wilderness, it was a daily ration. They weren't allowed to keep any uh, for the next day. That's one, that's one uh, uh, interpretation of what the hidden manna could be. And if you, you got five commentaries on revelation, you'll have six different viewpoints about what all this, 
what all this may or may not mean. But remember the overarching point. He's just saying to the one who conquers, I'm going to give life. I'm going to give uh, salvation. I'm going to give to be in my presence. Uh, another way that you can see the hidden manna, it could be pointing to the fact that after the exodus, after Israel left uh, Egypt, um, a pot of manna was stored in the Ark of the Covenant as a memorial. Uh, and so there are some Jewish traditions, there's some Jewish writings uh, that when the temple was destroyed in by Babylon, uh, Jeremiah, some say Jeremiah, some say an angel, rescued the ark from the Babylonians and they hid it somewhere in the earth until the Messiah would come. That's you know where they get the, the whole Raiders of the Lost Ark thing and all that. Um, the book of Second uh, Baruch is a it's a Jewish writing. It's pseudo epigraphal. The Jews never considered it scripture. It's not not Bible or anything like that. But it reflects a perspective on this, and it says that during the time of the Messiah, and this is a quote. It says the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those years because these are they who. Uh, will have arrived at the consummation of time. So uh, knowing that this tradition, this legend uh, was going around at the time and a lot of people were familiar with it, um, it, it could have something to do with the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. I'm going to give you, I'm going to bring forth the fulfillment of all these things. Um, it's possible, possible. Um that's the manna. You know, the manna is pretty, really the manna is pretty self-explanatory. The manna is food from heaven. God provided. And so there you have it. It's just that simple. Uh, but what about the white stone? Uh, the white stone is a little more difficult to discern. Um, there are many possible backgrounds that it could be. Uh, and, and we don't know for sure. Uh, but the white stone was, there, there's one, one viewpoint says the white stone was used uh, it definitely was used, but there's one viewpoint that's because it was used as a favorable vote. You know, they would sit around, they'd pass an urn, you know, in, in, in council chambers, and you would put in a white stone for a favorable vote and a black stone for a, you know, unfavorable vote. Uh, there's there's one school of thought that says that this white stone is just Christ giving you a favorable vote <laughs> you know he's giving you a giving you a, a, a cast in his lot that that you're you're justified and you know i give you favor i accept you you know Th- that that interpretation in all honesty that's that's kind of hard for me it's kind of hard for me to to it's kind of hard for me to to take that one in but uh a, a more plausible option for me is that we have historical records that uh, white stones were often used to gain admission to special occasions like festivals and banquets and things like that in the first century. And because of this, some people have seen that the stone, uh, seen the stone symbolizing uh, the believer's justification, but also symbolizing their invitation to partake in the marriage supper of the lamb. You see, he told them, he's telling them, I don't, I don't want you taking part in these feasts and festivals to these other gods. I'm going to give you the you're going to take part in the marriage supper of the lamb. You're going to take part in this feast in this festival. And, uh, you know, that's more plausible for me. Uh, both of these could be, you know, there could be a grain of truth in, in in both of them. But there's also an Old Testament connection found. Uh, you know, some people uh, look at it this way, that the white stone uh, and the manna in the wilderness are, um, they're, they're kind of connected because um, the, the white stone in the Old Testament was a stone called bdellium. Uh, in Numbers 11, 7, uh, the manna itself is compared in appearance to the stone bdellium. And we know that bdellium is a white stone. We see that in Exodus chapter 16, verse 31. Um, so if you kind of push all this together, coupled with the fact that bdellium is connected with the Garden of Eden, you read about it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, bdellium. Um, you know, it's, it kind of lends folks to uh, put all that together, the manna, the the white stone that was there in the Garden of Eden, and to say that uh, it's representing the return to paradise, the return to God's presence. And, of course, we know that overall that's what he's saying. He is promising eternal life. He's promising the return to uh, God's presence. So whether that's the white stone is this bdellium stone that was in the Garden, you know, who knows? Who knows? But it is promising eternal life. Um, 
also we need to take into account the fact that his this new name is written uh you know this new name is written on the stone uh, the new name you know jesus uh tells us uh th- th- this new name is uh a lot of people say you know am i going to get a new name you know am i going to be bob you know i'm jason now am i going to be frank then am i going to get a new name um, but the reality is that Jesus is going to explain this further in, in Revelation chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 12. He said that the new name that we're going to receive is a reference, he says, to the name of my God, the name of the city of my God that comes down out of heaven. And so the new name is the citizenship of the new city, the ownership of God over his people. See that in Revelation chapter 14. We're going to see it that the God's people have his name written upon their forehead. So the new name is just pointing to the fact that believers are going to receive Jesus's kingly name. The new name meant a new status. Um, the reality is it is uh, referencing an Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, and Isaiah 65, verse 15. Both of these are speaking about the Messianic age. Both of these are speaking about the coming of salvation and the uh, deliverance of God's people. And both Isaiah 62, 2 and Isaiah 65, 15, uh, it is prophesied there that the saints of God will be called by a new name in the coming of the kingdom. So what he's saying is, I'm going to give you a new name. He's saying, I'm fulfilling these prophecies that were given in Isaiah. The kingdom has come. Uh, The fulfillment is at hand. Um, And and it's interesting to me that in that same section, Isaiah 62, Isaiah 62, 2 is where he says, you're going to get a new name. But in Isaiah 62, 4, 4 and 5 right there, uh, those who receive that new name in, in Isaiah are called the bride. And God himself is called the bridegroom. So it doesn't take much brain power to put those images together and see what Jesus is talking about. The ones with the new name of the church, those who are called by Christ's name. And then finally, uh, I know this is a lot to throw at you right here at the end, but a lot of people want to know about this white stone and all this kind of stuff. But uh, the new name is written on the stone. Your new name is written on the stone. Uh, So the name here just isn't some secret name that's you know hidden away in your brain it's actually written on the stone and this is talking about in the old testament in exodus chapter 28 verses 9 through 12 you can see the at the attire of the of the high priest and part of his attire was he had an onyx stone on each shoulder and on those stones was written the names of the tribes of israel so when he goes in before the presence of god he is representing uh, the people of god because their names are written on that stone uh, on those stones that are on on his shoulder and so in that way he was representing them but the thing is the onyx stones that that the priest wore they weren't white they were black onyx stones are black so the idea of the white stone combined with the name of god's people on it um it's putting these images together showing that uh, that paradise has been restored righteousness is restored and we represented before god you know uh, with with purity and and holiness and you know, there's a lot of other kind of interpretations out there. You can go and study, and you, you'll probably find 10 or 12 more uh, that that people, you know, are talking about the white stone and what, is, what it means. And it says that no one knows the name except the one to whom it's given. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, you know, that word know in the Old Testament has just a rich semantic domain. It it, it has a range of meaning, meanings. Uh, today, you say, I know somebody just means we're acquainted. I know who you are. Or, or it could mean, you know, we're friends or I know them pretty good or whatever. But back in the Old Testament, you know, Adam knew Eve and they conceived a son, you know. So there was a there's a huge range of meaning to the word know back then. So what it's talking about is just relationship. It's talking about it's talking about the the personal relationship that you have with God. Uh, I'm going to put my name on your stone. And it's going to represent you before me. Uh, and you, nobody else is going to have that that you have, that new name that you have. It's going to be uh, you're going to be in the presence of God. And it, it It's just a big, huge conglomeration of Old Testament images to illustrate what it means to have eternal life, to be in the presence of God. It's the same thing we saw in Ephesus, the same thing we saw in Smyrna, the same thing here, and it's the same thing we're going to see in every one of the seven churches. The end, he says, to those who overcome, to those who conquer, I'm going to give them eternal life. They will be in my presence 
uh, forever. So here he's telling the Pergamum church, the message to the church at Pergamum, you've done well holding fast to the threats from the coming from the outside, but you have to also hold fast from the threats that are coming to the in, from the inside. Not only do we hold fast to his name when persecution and all that arises, but we hold fast to his truth when those um, infiltrate and try to distort his truth and trying to lead us astray. We hold fast to him from the outside and from the inside. 